Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. So you're literally committing to a three-year deal where you know in those next three years, the probability of computing power increasing is very high and the probability of cost decreasing for those same computers is very high. So you're not really getting the 30, 40, 50% discount. So I call these reservations or this, these look forward commitments a necessary evil because customers have to do it in many cases. They don't have an alternative, but at the same time, it's not good for their business. Hello and welcome to the Engineering Leadership Podcast brought to you by ELC, the engineering leadership community. I'm Jerry Lee, founder of ELC. And I'm Patrick Gallagher, and we're your hosts. Our show shares the most critical perspectives, habits, and examples of great software engineering leaders to help evolve leadership in the tech industry. If you're listening to this episode in 2022, then you know there is no escaping conversations on inflation, companies cutting costs, recession, downsizing, headcount loss, all of the big topics. In this episode, we explore the phenomenon of cloudflation in preventing runaway cloud costs with Leon Cooperman, CTO at CastAI. Leon founded and served as the CTO of ZenEdge, later acquired by Oracle, where he worked as VP of Security Products OCI at Oracle. And this is where a lot of our story on cloud costs begins. Leon guides us through a couple critical topics like the important economic and financial model concepts engineering leaders need to know, the trap of locked-in discounted cloud spend, and some alternatives that you can explore how to take advantage of elastic cloud pricing and other cost planning options for SaaS companies. We also talk about escaping egregious egress costs. And Leon provides an incredible synthesis on the macroeconomic environment of cloud and what you can do as an engineering leader to better control your cloud costs. Enjoy our conversation with Leon Cooperman. To begin our conversation, Leon, we were doing some preliminary research about Cast AI and your background. There were a couple things that jumped out to me immediately. So I, on like Cast AI was a website, there's like the the quote, cut your cloud bill in half. And I think a couple lines down, it's punish your cloud costs, not your engineer. So first off, like that's an incredibly attractive proposition. The second one was I had a recent conversation with a friend this weekend. Uh, they're a senior engineer on a small startup team. And they were mentioning, you know, lamenting about the relationship with their manager. And they're talking about how they spend about $50,000 a month on cloud costs. And the mandate for the company is don't worry about cloud costs at all. And that was interesting in juxtaposing some of the other research with one of your recent articles about Snap's uh, latest like earnings report and how that pairs up with their cloud costs and some of the big things about you know $1.5 billion in cloud spend across five years, having that be about 40% of annual revenue. So like both cases like within their total revenue, absolutely massive comparable costs. And thinking about Cast AI, I was like, wow, that's a really attractive proposition. But also, it really highlights the significant challenge of managing cloud costs effectively for engineering leaders. So all that to say, this is a huge problem. And I'm really excited to learn why this became such an important issue for you. And so can you bring us in a little bit more behind the origin story behind Cast AI and why cloud costs and this whole issue became such a central focus for you? Yeah, absolutely. And I can totally see where 
like the management team for the engineering friend you're talking about is coming from. Like when you have a growing business, you have to focus somewhere, right? So are you focusing as a startup, profitable growth is the number one most important metric, especially for SaaS companies, software as a service companies. Yep. So you need to be growing, but you also need to show sustainable economics, right? So what does sustainable economics mean in software? It means that you have to have a gross profit margin that's in the kind of 80 plus percent range, meaning your cost of goods sold can't be more than 20%. And when you're selling software, cloud costs are your cost of goods sold fundamentally. It's not your engineering cost because that goes into a R&D bucket. It's not your sales and marketing costs because that's where you should be spending most of your money. It's the cost of cloud and delivering your software. So while your friend, while they're focusing on growth very quickly, they're going to realize that it's not one metric, it's multiple. And cost is going to become a really important issue. If not now, it will be in the next kind of 12 month period. So Patrick, let me give you the kind of the genesis. We, you know, being a serial entrepreneur, I really found this pattern where we start a business when we have a real problem to solve. And so it can't be another person's problem that I'm looking at it from the sideline because I can't really empathize with that pain. I have to feel the pain innately. And mm -hmm. costs are a pain that I felt innately. So if we rewind back to 2014 or so, um, we started this company called ZenEdge, which is a cybersecurity company. And we decided to cut our capital expenditure exposures. In other words, let's not spend a lot of money up front in buying servers and data centers. This was still like, you know, seven years after AWS was kind of invented. So we said, why don't we go all in on AWS and deploy the software in every single region? Because it was the kind of software that needed to be local to the end customer. And so we did that. And lo and behold, our gross margin or our cost of goods sold metric was upside down. So every time we would onboard a big customer, the bill would spike. And I would have a lot of waste in the system, but I couldn't quite pinpoint it. So it became this really, you know, we talked about don't punish your engineers. It became this massive tug of war between my team and me specifically and the finance team and our CEO. And rightfully so, they couldn't figure out why we couldn't get our costs in order. And so while, while that adventure ended really well, like we ended up getting acquired by Oracle and the outcome for COGS was great because they have their own data center. So they were able to just migrate all of our software to their own infrastructure that brought costs down dramatically. Um, and customers really love the product. We failed on that aspect. Like we didn't build the business with the right uh, cost of goods in mind. So that's kind of the origin story. And then I kind of shelved that for many years and we came back to it when I realized many other people in the industry were having this problem. There was a couple things that you shared that I wanted to dive into a little bit. You mentioned a couple different really important sort of economic and financial modeling concepts for engineering leaders. One of the things I was hoping we could do is deconstruct some of the principles or approaches to help somebody better control different cloud costs. But I wanted to, to go back in and you were talking about like the key parts for like developing a good economic model for a software company is around like increasing the gross margin. You talked about sort of an 80% range. And then this other concept with like cloud costs is about lowering the cost of goods sold. Are there other kind of foundational economic concepts for an engineering leader that they need to be aware of when they're considering like building out the economic model of their product or their service? So for engineering, those are the main ones. As an engineer, your input to the financial model is really the cost of running the software. Yes, there's engineering costs and, and there's like defect rates and 
like other metrics are very tangential. Like I'll give you an example, Patrick. If you write your software poorly and your customers are unhappy with the quality, you'll get a lot of churn. And churn yields a poor economic model for a software company because you're mm -hmm. essentially not growing your net revenue. You're churning that revenue because customers are leaving. But the most impactful and direct input from an engineering perspective into a company's financial models is the cost of, of software delivery. That's that's great. I was I just like there was something on on Twitter that I was reading. It was about what engineering leaders need to know about reading a profit and loss statement. And I've gotten lost in those types of documents before. And like, how do you map that then to like the health of a business? And so just understanding the focus there for you as the head of function or the head of engineering should be focused on or where's your responsibility with the economic economic model is really interesting. You wrote a really great article sort of about this cloud cost dilemma uh, with sort of the, the recent earnings report coming out of Snap. And I was wondering maybe if we could either use that case study or we could also open up a different case study to deconstruct some of the principles or practices to help somebody better control sort of the cost of goods sold or the, the cloud costs. Um, so I was wondering, could you, could you maybe either summarize that Snap dilemma or, or introduce us to a different case study? Maybe, Patrick, let's take a step back and yeah. help folks understand the basics of like cloud economics just so we have a level set. When cloud computing kind of started out back in 2007, really with AWS, what were your options as a business? You could go open a data center and you could go and buy physical servers and you can rack and stack them. And that meant that you were in multiple year contracts for different things, what we call power, pipe, and cooling, like the data center, the physical store space itself would be a multi-year contract. The servers would often be multiple year leases. Then you'd have to go buy network equipment and have all the engineering talent to put that all together. And then so that's one option. And then you could kind of bleeding into what a cloud is, you could kind of rent servers, but then you were kind of at the mercy of the hosting company. And then they had different packaged offerings. Some of them were not very flexible, like you couldn't really get capacity when you needed them. The, the kind of AWS model says, look, don't worry about any kind of physical infrastructure. We're going to give you this scheme in what's now called infrastructure as a service cloud, and you can rent those resources on demand, meaning pay for those resources per hour. So the computer costs $1 an hour, you spend five hours doing a job, great, you've paid $5 and that's the end of your commitment with AWS. And then you shut it down and you owe nothing. So that was really promising to engineering teams. Why? Mm -hmm. Because previously the adoption lifecycle for new, in, like if you wanted to create something new and you needed infrastructure to do that, you'd have to go beg the finance team to, hey, please, can we set up this project? So it would be this waterfall approach where you'd have to plan for the long-term. So the cloud gave the keys to the engineering team and that the giving them the keys opened up all of this creativity. So we've seen that creativity boom. Just think about the things that have been delivered since 2007. It's just unstoppable innovation. And that's fantastic. The problem happened when, so we swung the pendulum to complete freedom, right? Now as, and when you're in a boom cycle, nobody cares. Like you're growing the business as an engineering team, you're adding value. We're spending more on infrastructure. We don't care because we're growing so fast. doesn't matter. But when the pendulum swings the other way, and we happen to be swinging the other way right now in a technical recessionary period, we have, as of the time we're talking now, we've had two quarters of negative growth. So now everyone's looking at their bottom line. You know, as a public company, how do we crunch and make sure our earnings per share are growing and not shrinking as a result of a recession? Well, inevitably, 
where are you wasting the most money as a technology company and many other companies, by the way. And that is now that you've moved all of your infrastructure out of data centers into cloud, that's where your money is. That's where your costs are. So that's kind of a baseline. And so does that kind of make sense, Patrick, at a high level? Entirely makes sense in terms of the dilemma. It's like we've been in this boon uh, in this world of kind of like infinite capital and growth, which has yielded a bunch of creativity. And now that we're in this sort of painful moment where everybody's checking their expenses, cloud has sort of dominated a lot of the ability to create that innovation and that output. So yeah, I'm totally tracking. So, so obviously customers are going to go back to companies like AWS and Google and Azure, those are the three big hyperscalers, and say, hey, guys, what can we do here? Like, this is way too expensive. And so there's this natural inclination here, and I'll explain the business motivation on the other side in a second. So for AWS, for example, they all say, oh, well, why don't you commit to us for a year or two years or three years, and then we'll give you a guaranteed discount. And customers first love it. They say, oh, great, we'll get 30% off, 40% off. All we got to do is commit for three years. Then there are different levels of discount if you put money down versus not putting money down. But you're still committing. And here's the problem with committing. You don't know what you need in the future. You don't know if your business is going to shrink, if it's going to grow. How fast is it going to grow? Are you going to go back to the well and recommit again? So this is a terrible customer experience. It also locks you into a very specific mode of operation, right? The way that clouds used to operate is the more specific your commit, so meaning you know, there are many computers on the menu at AWS. So the more specific you could pinpoint your type of computer, the better your discount will be. So obviously people went for the best possible discounts, but how do you know you're gonna use that computer in the future? And here's where the problem gets really interesting. Computers don't stand still, they continuously evolve. We have an observation called Moore's Law that says every 18 months, the power of computers kind of doubles. So the transistor density on a chip doubles and therefore costs go in half. And what happens as a result, let's say Intel or ARM or whoever introduces a new chipset, the clouds introduce those new chips in a new family of computers. And now those computers are faster, better, stronger, and cheaper, but you're stuck committed to this old family of computers because you wanted the best discount you could get. So you're literally committing to a three-year deal where you know in those next three years, the probability of computing power increasing is very high and the probability of cost decreasing for those same computers is very high. So you're not really getting the 30, 40, 50% discount. So I call these reservations or this, these look forward commitments a necessary evil because customers have to do it in many cases. They don't have an alternative, but at the same time, it's not good for their business. And, and Snapchat is exactly that manifestation. If you, if you read the kind of the article that I wrote, they decided early on, I think it was pre-IPO maybe, that they were going to commit a billion dollars to AWS. And to, to be smart about it, they chose multiple vendors. So they said, and we're going to commit $2 billion to Google. So now they have a $3 billion of committed spend. Imagine if that even depreciates or kind of loses 25% of its value. You're, you're in a huge hole from the very beginning. So you mentioned that a lot of companies sometimes get forced, like they, they have no choice but to do this. My follow-up question here is like, you laid out such like a logical case for like the dilemma here that people face. So why why do companies opt in to this type of, of like locked-in vendor spend typically? Lack of opportunity of alternatives, right? So, so AWS and Google and Azure are slightly different ecosystems, right? They have similar and competing services, but they're not exactly the same. The APIs for those services aren't the same. The way you work with them isn't the same. 
So you have specialization within your team. So an engineer probably knows how to work with one, maybe two clouds, but certainly is not fluid across all clouds. So if you build a center of competency in your engineering team for a single cloud, you're locked in, you're going to stay there, right? So now that cloud has you kind of trapped. So you don't have a lot of optionality to, to price between vendors. So mm-hmm. going into a reservation seems more logical. And honestly, it's the easy path. Like if you're just doing financial analysis and you're saying, okay, well, if we commit for two, you know, our business has been running this way for three years. If we commit for two years, we're going to get this 40%. Solves my pain point today. Let's just do it and get it over with. But you're really putting a small Band-Aid on, on a very large wound. What? are the alternative options beyond just saying we have to commit X amount to AWS or Azure or Google or whoever? What's kind of what's what's the alternative options for folks that they should strategically consider? Yeah, so it when when I was doing the analysis on this, and I kind of stepped back and looked at the word, like, what would the utopia look like, we had to kind of make some fundamental assumptions. But when you rent a computer, and you're you install a whole bunch of software on it, you've essentially These things are called virtual machines, right? Because they're exactly like computers. They've got all of the peripherals associated with the computer and you manage them like you would your PC. You install software and then if it needs a security patch, you do a security patch on that software. Well, it turns out that's not a very good way to deploy software at scale. So the world is moving to and has moved in large part to these things called containers. You may have heard the term Docker container in the past. These containers are really small footprints that embed all of the dependencies that your software has into a really, really tiny shell, like a, like a really tiny uh, box, essentially. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that deploying these containers is really easy, and it lends itself really nicely to this thing called continuous delivery, which means if I don't want to just deliver my software once a month or once a week even, if I want to continuously update it and deploy it, these containers are perfect for that use case. Mm-hmm. And that's where I believe the majority of the world is moving to. So... Forgetting about the infrastructure underlying those containers for a second, if you believe that containers are the way of the future, which I I think is natural in the software industry, then you need an orchestration platform. You need something that will make all these containers work together at scale and scale up when you need them to and scale down when you need them to. And it turns out there was a big battle a few years ago about which container orchestration platform uh, would win. And this open source project from Google, it's called Kubernetes. You look at Rita, you may not see how to pronounce it, but it's actually a Greek word for the, for navigator. So all of this is like nautical theme. Docker, by the way, is a nautical theme little tugboat as well. No one's ever explained to me the Greek origins of the, the word Kubernetes before. So I, I really appreciate that translation. <laughs> no worries. Uh, we're here with useless facts, Patrick. Absolutely. <laughs> we're here to support you on that. So... You have this orchestration platform, and what runs under the covers is the traditional virtual machines or bare metal machine computers that clouds offer. So now you have this really beautiful layer of open source, and that's key, right? It's open. It's not owned by any single cloud provider. Layer of abstraction for you to deploy your software. The clouds like it, and they don't like it. The industry is moving this way, so everyone's got to support Kubernetes. All three clouds and everyone else as a version of Kubernetes as a managed service that they support. They're all slightly different, but the semantics are the same. You deploy these containers, they run. When you don't need them anymore, they get destroyed. And the underlying infrastructure is what you really need to scale and manage. So that's kind of the premise. Now, if you believe that that is kind of the way the world is going, and I believe over the next five to seven years, everybody 
will be deploying their software this way. So it's a big bet on my part, right? Like if I'm wrong, there's no business, right? From, from my perspective. Um, but if I'm right, then there's a massive opportunity. And here's the massive opportunity. You can now move away from these long-term reservations and start using shorter-term economic formulas in these clouds that will actually help you instead of hinder you for long-term uh, lock-in. So turns out there are a few other models that clouds have. So if you were a cloud, Patrick, and you had excess, let's say you built out a region like Ashburn or California, Northern California, or Oregon, and you had a whole bunch of excess capacity in your data centers. Maybe you were only 20% full when you opened that data center. What would it be a mechanism for you to get some value out of those computers that are standing still and not doing anything? Let's just flip the equation for a second. Yeah, you rent them out, right? But you rent them out cheap because nobody, like, so there's a huge discount implied with that excess inventory. So, you know, while we think all of this is modern, like, kind of theory, we're always going back to the old retail adage of when you've got excess supply, it goes on sale. That's true in every industry and it's true in the cloud too. So in the cloud, these things are called spot instances or preemptible instances. So what does that mean? That means that AWS or Google or other, if they have excess capacity in a region, they'll give it to you dirt cheap, 80% off, 90% off, 70% off. And it's the price fluctuates based on supply and demand economics, which is great. We, we want to see an open market, right? But here's the big caveat. Yeah, you get that computer. But if the cloud needs it for a real customer, in quotes, like someone who's going to pay full pop or a reservation, then they are going to yank it back from you. And they're going to yank it back from you within a couple minutes notice. So AWS is generous. They give two minutes notice. <laughs> Google is not so generous, they give 30 seconds notice. So imagine you're as, you as a customer now on the other end of that equation. Okay, I could be really safe with these reservations, cool. Or I can go into chaos with two minutes notice and none of my engineering team knows how to deal with the chaos. I'm not, gonna, I'm not even going to entertain those discounts. That's, yep. that's not for me. So only 7% of AWS customers end up using this, right? So there's a massive group of customers that believe this is just too much work and chaos for them to manage. And this is where we kind of step in and help with that problem. But imagine you could use that 90% off without committing to the future. Wouldn't that be a much better model? Like maybe you only needed a fraction of your reservations for the most sensitive workloads like databases. So maybe your reservations go from $100,000 to $10,000 or $5,000. And then you leverage this elastic pricing model for the rest of your stuff, which isn't as sensitive. Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. I'm thinking about like from a team or like an engineering function operations perspective, like what does an engineering function need to have set up in order to be able to like take advantage of like an elastic, like more of an elastic model versus having a long-term cloud commitment? Yeah, so we think that that's the offering that we're building. So like if you step back and look at the industry, like and you look at how people are scaling their infrastructure today, 
we saw this massive gap in that. So there are these things called autoscalers, right? What is their job? Their job is when you need computers, they'll go and grab computers, but they'll do it within the parameters that you, the engineering team, have set up. So you, you have this natural human bias built into that selection process. You say, I know how to use these three types of computers. That's what I've used in the past. That's what I'm comfortable with. So I'm going to scale based on these three SKUs, essentially. In AWS, they're called families or computer families, right? So like an example of a computer family might be the M5 family, standing for memory optimized compute, fifth generation. And then that's what you use until maybe M6 comes out at some point. The problem with that is well, there's two problems. One, there's human bias, which we mentioned. And the two, those aren't price-driven decisions. Those are decisions of comfort. Like, I've used this thing. It seems kind of reasonable in price, so I'm going to go use them. Well, it turns out that Amazon has over 500 different types of computers that you can rent on the menu. And they have different pricing all the time, especially when you take into account reservation and spot instances. This whole inventory is in constant flux. It's impossible for a human being to keep up with all of those price changes and the, the supply and demand curve. What we said was, okay, well, what if CAST takes the place of the autoscaler in this context? And we start making those decisions based on what the application needs for performance, but also what the cost in the market is. So we could swap in and swap out the infrastructure as it changes and fluctuates in price. And we can look across all of the different pricing schemes on demand, reserve, spot instance. And it turns out you have to make those decisions very frequently. We make them mm -hmm. every few seconds. And as a result, just it's impossible. You need, a, you need a machine to play that game. You can't have humans try to keep up. So the way we see it is to try to take advantage of those things, you could write your own software and your, you know, your own plugins for the cloud. And we've seen people do it uh, somewhat successfully, but it's a huge engineering effort. We really think that there's a product or a project missing in the industry to help customers with this very specific cloud cost economics problem. Definitely. Just to, to recap a little bit of what we've talked about so far. So we talked a little bit about Kubernetes, the move to containers, uh, CICD, and how all those things sort of orchestrate together and how that's building out the infrastructure for that is like a, is an option to help support some of the more flexible options. Are there other cost planning options that you would point people to to help with some of the like bigger expenses around creating the cost of goods for a, a SaaS-oriented company? So, so cost planning is an interesting one because you've got multiple teams involved. Like you have, it's not just one engineering team, you know, modern engineering teams are broken out into service teams, right? Like you've got uh, different microservices for different functions within your software. And each one of them has been designed to kind of run independently of one another. So that think of them as small businesses or ecosystems. Now, what happens when you're using shared infrastructure and one team goes on a drunken binge of uh, <laughs> infrastructure usage, right? How do you allocate those costs, right? So that's another major problem, especially in Kubernetes because it's a multi-tenant environment where, and it should be because you imagine you had a team and you were half using your computers and I had a team and I was half using my computers. Well, now we have two pools of inefficiency. We should bring those together to reduce total inefficiency. Here's kind of the problem from a planning perspective. When the cloud calculates your build, they do it as a batch process overnight. So they crunch the numbers. And then if you've had a huge spike in usage from maybe one team went haywire, as an example, you're only going to see that the next day. And then you have to take action. But by then, you may have already spent thousands or tens of thousands of dollars extra. So the key thing is to have real-time visibility, not just in the bill itself, but in the usage that composes the bill. So 
we recommend customers having real-time metrics and exposure in whatever metric system that they may be using. It could be a tool called Grafana or Datadog or cloud-native tools um, such as CloudWatch, but you need to have real-time visibility into your usage and you need to have real-time visibility into every team's usage individually so that you understand what the root cause analysis is of a potential a cost overrun or a cost spike. And Patrick, this is actually a, a point where it gets interesting. This is such mm -hmm. an important need in the industry, especially for Kubernetes users, which we're, we're highly integrated with. We're, we are uh, going to be launching, this is a kind of a bit of a sneak peek, a free tool for all customers. You don't have to sign up with us commercially. You don't even have to talk to a human being, but you sign up and you connect your Kubernetes clusters and then we'll give you that real-time visibility within kind of 15 second resolution to understand what each one of your teams is using, what infrastructure they're running on and what they're doing relative to their kind of normal pace of utilization in the cloud. Seeing that deep visibility in real time is a really important tip. And then I will say that running a engineering-led process where you take an evaluation of your cloud costs and not just compute costs, which we're heavily focused on, but storage, database, egress, which is a big topic that we should talk about, egress being the traffic that comes out of the cloud. All of these things have to be monitored all of the time because slight changes in architecture can lead to poor cost results. So we have a practice, for example, we have a ledger that comes out, one like given all of the real-time visibility that we have, once a month we get together as a team and we all look at the bill. We all understand their components. All the team leads get together and we have active debate as to how we can drive utilization. So I would say for the scale, for CAST as an example, for the scale of company that we're at, I'm really happy with our cost management discipline because we're continuously looking at it. Because if we fail at this as being a provider, how could our customers ever have hope in trusting a system like this? Totally. I love that practice of the team leads like go through the disciplined effort to, to view the bill and have the active debate over utilization. I want to talk about Egress Cross, but first I had a follow-up question about that. I guess what, what are the more interesting debates? What have been some of the ones that have yielded the best insights around the, the organization? Yeah, so like I'll give you just a couple from recent, like just in the last 30 days, you know, we use object storage heavily to store data, right? So it's one of the services that the clouds offer. And we were recently having, uh, we had a spike in those costs, right? So in the order of a few thousand dollars. And specifically, um, the costs were related to multiple services kind of accessing the same type of data over and over again. So we said, well, okay, well, why don't we just cache that data in some intermediate layer inside of our application infrastructure so that we're not continuously egressing from the object storage bucket from multiple regions. And so that immediately you know, brought a $3,000 item down to almost zero just by having that engineering insight. Other ones uh, that are interesting is how much data do you store in your relational database? How much historical data do you store versus offloading that data to some cold storage like a data warehouse. Also, we went through that exercise a few months ago that brought our, uh, we were able to shrink the size of our relational database and bring that down significantly so that we were using the right type of tool for the right problem. The problem is this type of architecture drift creeps in all of the time, especially in growing systems. Uh, just having that ability to introspect and reason and debate with each other on what's the best architectural pattern often leads to excellent results on the cost side. 
So would you recommend pairing sort of like the debate on utilization, like with like more architecturally driven conversations? Um, or is this sort of like a separate kind of like, I'm thinking like functionally, how does this meeting look like? Is it a separate meeting specifically about utilization? Or does it sort of seamlessly merge within architectural planning? Well, it, it should like th there are two principles that should be actually three that should be uh, front of mind for any architectural conversation. What are those things? Is your system secure? So, you know, doing tabletop exercises on vulnerabilities that you may be introducing with new features and following all of the best practices for security is a must. Cost is one of those things that you should be considering. Hey, if we blow up the relational database with billions of rows, what's that going to do to our cost and performance, right? Performance and availability are kind of the third pillar. Most architects and design folks are obsessed with performance. How do we get the fastest and best system? And high availability to an extent is also a consideration because there are a lot of design patterns that talk about availability specifically. Like I'll give you an example, like consensus algorithms in distributed computing and leader election, they're designed to have the ability for multiple systems to lead a consensus conversation in a distributed computing problem. So those are highly high availability problems. Very few engineering teams actually consider cost as a first principle thing to reason about when they're designing a system. I, I love it. It seems like the it's like the missing leg of like the important architectural stool uh, has just been illuminated with cost there. Do you have any recommendations for how to successfully have this conversation as like a institutionalized within your team? Yeah, so the bill comes out, let's say the first of the month, right? You have a Confluence page or another wiki page that describes a breakdown. And maybe we'll publish kind of a sanitized version for this show we'll mm -hmm. of, of, of the wiki that we use. And you distribute that to everybody in the company, everybody, finance, and all at the same time. And then you have a, a scheduled meeting on the second to say, let's just go over this. If there's nothing that's alarming, this is a 15-minute conversation and a cup of coffee, but if there's some more rigorous debate that needs to be had, it happens the day after the bill is published. Mm -hmm. And that also takes into account the fact that all of those intra-month spikes are taken care of as emergency P1 issues immediately, that we don't leave them to linger until the end of the month. This is more of a cost retrospective, given that we have good cost hygiene and engineering all of the time. I love that. Thank you for, for helping me walk us through that. I, I haven't heard, that has not come up in any of our conversations as like an important planning conversation to have with people. So that was really great. You mentioned egress costs. Let's talk a little bit about egress costs, the dilemma there. Is there a way for an in, for engineering leaders or heads of, heads of function to escape egress costs? Yeah, that's a good question. So let's define what egress is for folks. Egress is simply the traffic that leaves your cloud environment. So when you're when you're serving a web page or a large image or a video, you as the own owner of that cloud account pay for the bytes that leave the cloud. Ironically enough, you don't pay for the bytes that come into the cloud. And there's like a financial reason why cloud operators do that. So they make it very attractive to bring data in and very difficult to bring data out. So I always use the Hotel California analogy there. And the reason they do that, why are they doing that? Are they doing that to make money? Are they doing that for other reasons? I would argue that the cloud make is already highly profitable business. Egress is not gonna make or break the day for clouds. The reason why they do this strategically, in my opinion, it's almost like a monopolistic behavior to try to prevent easy migration between cloud environments. Because I think, think about it, Patrick, if all of these clouds have similar capabilities, if there is no natural barrier to exit, what's to stop you from kind of fluctuating your workloads easily between cloud environments as features come up, as 
important architectures emerge in a different cloud or something is cheaper. So there's a natural tendency to say, well, we're not all the same. We're not a commodity. We actually have a lot of value add. And this is one mechanism for a lock-in process for these clouds. And notice how none of them are really taking those costs down significantly. They all are running on these extremely high gross margins and nobody's budging on the number. These three entities are behaving like an oligopoly in many constructs. I, you know, I am a, not a proponent of government involvement in most things, but I think this is one where we need to take a closer look and see if there's some type of legislative remedy that might force these guys to play in a more open playing field. Some really, really big implications because I'm thinking there's the design principle or like the the sales principle of like if you want to like decrease cancellations on your membership, you introduce friction into the system. And so you see a lot of these like more like B2C oriented companies like where you have to cancel your subscription via by sending an email versus like clicking a button. And so it just never occurred to me that like the version of that for cloud companies was introducing big egress costs for the migration of data out of the system. And so that's yeah, that's that's crazy. It's interesting because it's actually kind of worse than that. Like you, they'll send you an appliance to bring your data in. So they'll send you like terabytes of disks that you can plug into local storage and then upload it all and ship them a physical appliance to bring the data in, make it super easy, right? But Patrick, let me just give you the math. Cloud providers buy their bandwidth from ISPs like um, Level 3 used to be a big one, Telstra. There are many others that they buy their bandwidth from and they buy it based on this metric called megabits per second. When I was buying bandwidth, it was at a dollar and I wasn't buying in volume compared to these guys by any means, right? So let's imagine the price is a dollar, just to be generous. The current list price on AWS is nine cents a gigabyte, which equates to $30. So they're paying a dollar and they're charging 30. That's not an 80% gross margin. You know, yeah. that that is an, a seen uh, markup, that's 30x markup on, on cost. And that's the piece that I feel is unfair. And that's the piece that I feel is vendor lock-in. But we want to go back to your question on what can you do about it? Like what, what can I as an, and I've seen engineering teams go to extremes to get away from these egress costs. Some of them are unhealthy behaviors. I'll, I'll give you an example of a couple of healthy things that you can do. And then I'll give you an example of some things that are just taking it to an extreme. So one of the things that um, cloud providers charge egress for is what's called cross availability zone traffic. So as the best practice for high availability, the clouds say, well, you should replicate your application in, in the same region, but at least across a couple of availability zones, because that's like a hundred miles separation between data centers. If there's a disaster, we still have your back. That's great, but they still charge for that traffic. It's not the same as to the public internet, but they still charge for inner AZ traffic. That's a problem. So what, what are some of the things that you can do? Well, you can use caching and there are great services like Akamai and Cloudflare and Fastly. These are all CDNs, so content uh, delivery networks that allow you to cache static and dynamic content at the edge of their network where you're paying a fraction of the price for egress. So your egress between the caching service and the cloud is minimal. Mm -hmm. And then a lot of the traffic just happens at the edge, which creates a faster user experience for end users and uh, lowers your costs of egress. And um, like, for example, Cloudflare has this thing called the bandwidth alliance, right, which is an attempt to lower your overall egress costs because they've, they've created deals with different cloud providers. I'll give you one more good tip 
if you're doing a lot of egress between your physical on-premise infrastructure and the cloud, each cloud provider has an offering. Sometimes it's called Fast Connect or Direct Connect, but it's basically you buy a, a layer two or a layer three fiber connection that you now get charged instead of nine cents a gigabyte, you get charged at one and a half cents a gigabyte or two cents a gigabyte. So it significantly reduces the egress if you're doing a lot of traffic between on-premise and, uh, and, and, and your cloud environment. I think in the economic environment that all of us are in right now, many of us are very familiar with a lot of the impacts of inflation on a lot of different parts of our life. I haven't found a whole lot of people talking about like that impact in the world of cloud. And I think you've done an incredible job of like distilling and making really explicit a lot of the forces at play that will likely be impacting the cloud environments that many of us depend on. You also mentioned Moore's Law and some of the increases in compute power that are, are trending up and then the resulting decrease in cost. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about just what's going on in the macro environment of the world of cloud. And I think ultimately to get to the point of what can an engineering leader who's responsible for controlling these costs do in this sort of macroeconomic environment. And so can you help orient us there and help give us a little bit of a guidance on how can we navigate this as engineering leaders? You know, like that's the thing I worry about that other than getting really efficient with your use of resources, it's going to be hard for an individual team or a leader to impact, you know, kind of macro trend. Mm -hmm. And it's a very deep topic. So maybe at the highest level, we are, at, if you've tried to buy a car, you kind of see this, we're in a chip shortage, right? You can't get chips yep. for a lot of the common devices that we want to buy out of our supply chain. Part of that, it was a COVID issue where factories were shut down. Part of it is a kind of a global economic issue, and I'll explain what I mean in a second. Most of the rare earth material that we use and the refinement of that, and then the actual chip foundry, like the thing, all of that is made in a very specific part of the world. In fact, Taiwan Semiconductor is a company that makes the vast majority of the chip capacity that we have globally. The problem is, is that Taiwan is a disputed area of the world. China believes it belongs to China. Taiwan believes that it's an independent place. And we as a kind of Western society have said, this is a very dirty process. It takes a lot of water to produce chips. So let's not be in that dirty business. Let's let others take care of it for us. And that was a huge mistake. So we're in this very tough spot where we've got Taiwan, like we don't know what happens to Taiwan in the, in the next one, two, three years from a macroeconomic and global geopolitical perspective, it's a hot potato. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of ways, Ukraine is the canary in the coal mine for China. Like it was a perfect test case to see how the world would react to an aggre a perceived aggressive move from a totalitarian government into a contested area of the world. So depending on how kind of Ukraine unfolds, we don't know what will happen to Taiwan. And we're on our heels as kind of the Western part of the world because that we desperately need that capacity until we can ramp up capacity in other places of the world. And they should be the United States, Canada, Mexico, like West, they should be in Europe, they should be in India, et cetera. We need to diversify, like any single point of failure in any supply chain is a massive problem. And that is what's leading to temporary inflation of computer prices, like of chip prices. Now, some of that's alleviated over the last 30, 60 days, but it's still a massive geopolitical problem, one that's unraveling. And it's not something that you can deal with as an individual engineering leader. Like if there's no capacity, there's no capacity. 
But what you can do is you can make sure that you're using the least set of resources possible to deliver your software. And you know what really good case study for that, Patrick, was Tesla. Like they continued to ship cars while the rest of the industry suffered. Why did they do that? Because they were agile enough to say, well, we've got these 10 chips, let's say in the car, we can repurpose three of them to do X instead of Y, and let's just be nimble about it and let's do a software update. And that's gonna allow us to keep shipping. I think lessons are learned from that type of agile environment where oh, I thought I needed this many thousands of CPU cores. Well, maybe I can do with a fraction of that and be more creative in terms of how I can solve the problem efficiently. That's really great and understanding like how to be flexible and more dynamic with those with those problems. The way we typically wrap up, Leon, is we end with some, some rapid-fire questions. So I've got five rapid-fire questions right for you if you're ready. Let's go. Perfect. What are you reading or listening to right now? I'm listening to a fictional epic series uh, called The Wheel of Time, uh, which recently became, like I'm on book seven or eight right now. It's just a massive epic. It puts to shame the size of like Game of Thrones, for example, which I really enjoyed. But I, I figure I'll never get to read the last book now unless George R. R. Martin pulls a rabbit out of a hat. What tool or methodology has had a big impact on you? Yeah, so for me, data science and specifically the use of like Jupyter Notebooks and open source toolkits like TensorFlow and uh, Scikit-Learn have had a massive change in the way that I think about solving algorithmic problems. What's been one of the most meaningful in-person experiences with your team, company, or otherwise? Um, doesn't have to be the most, but you know, maybe that falls within the top five most meaningful in-person experiences that you've had with your team, company, or otherwise. Yeah, so, so my team is in the Baltics, so I just recently completed a trip out there, and we did a whole bunch of in-person team building together. The most fun we had was we took a set of, I think it was 18 four-by-fours uh, out into the forest in the pouring rain, and we just did this huge, I think it was a 10-kilometer track around the forest. I was the slowest and also the most conservative, but I'm also probably the oldest <laughs> in the group as well. That sounds like a total blast. You shared a lot of trends with us today, Leon, so I'm excited to see what, what this opens up, but what's a trend that you're seeing or following that's interesting or hasn't hit the mainstream yet? Um, the adoption of ARM processors in mainstream cloud computing. It's so under the radar, but I think it's going to, like, I don't know, Patrick, if you have an M1 processor, if you're using a Mac, but like that was a life changer for me in my piece in you know, a world of using personal computers. And the same thing is going to flood the cloud market that I'm super excited about. And I want to evangelize because it's a much cooler, better running technology than Intel chipsets. The last, last one, Leon, to, to wrap us all up. Is there a quote or a mantra that you live by or, or a quote that's been really resonating with you right now? I guess a couple. The one that's probably obscure that no one's ever heard of, I'll, I'll share that one with you. Work to work yourself out of a job and you'll never be out of a job is the one that I kind of live by. I, I'm continuously trying to delegate responsibility for things so that I can step up and do some higher order thinking and that focuses, forces the team to be highly independent. And I've been living that kind of mantra for, for years now. I love it. A great, a great quote to end. Leon, thank you so much for helping make sense of some really broad, complex, macroeconomic, microeconomic, and team challenges. Um, really appreciate a lot of your stories and insights here. Thanks so much for joining us. Patrick, great questions. Thank you so much for having me. Really a lot of fun. 
If you enjoyed the episode, make sure that you click subscribe if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or follow if you're listening on Spotify. And if you love the show, we also have a ton of other ways to stay involved with the engineering leadership community. To stay up to date and learn more about all of our upcoming events, our peer groups, and other programs that are going on, head to sfelc.com. That's sfelc.com. See you next time on the Engineering Leadership Podcast.